Well, good morning. I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 5. And, uh, I'll go back to some basic things. We're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments this morning. Deuteronomy 5. And we're going to be reading together uh, verses 1 through 22 here in just a moment. But as we orient ourselves to thinking about the Ten Commandments of God, um, realize that Deuteronomy 5 is, is uh, the second list, or listing actually, the re-giving of God's Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Now, the original giving, you can find them listed in Exodus chapter 20, mentioned before we find it here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Exodus 20, you'll remember that Moses had gone up to the mountain and received these commandments, especially from the mouth, from the fingertip, if you will, of God inscribed on his tablets. And 40 years before, he had received those for really a generation before. And you'll maybe remember some of the story. He came down, found them, found them in idolatry and, uh, and kind of in a fit, uh, threw the, the tablets down. God gave those Ten Commandments again. And now we find ourselves in Deuteronomy, which really that word speaks of the re-giving of the law, telling it again. This is right before the Hebrews are going to go into the promised land and receive the fulfillment of the promised land that God had spoken in generations past. So after wandering in the wilderness these 40 years, hear them. But before they go in, Moses needs to tell them again what God expects of them. They're to become a nation, a society that are governed by God's law, to be, if you will, a kingdom of priests, to be a shining light for the nations, to show forth the glory and the truth of God and about God. So we're going to read these together, and then I really want to just walk through each one of them again, and as you would recognize, I can't go into much depth in each one, but we're going to look at them, read them, and then I'll offer some brief comments, but really... I want us to hear these as coming from God. A helpful book, if you're interested in reading more about the Ten Commandments, at least the most helpful commentary, if you will, that I found is a book by Albert Muller, who's the president of Southern Seminary. He's got a book called The Words from the Fire, Hearing God's Voice in the Ten Commandments. And he goes through each one of them and sheds some light maybe that would be to you, and it was helpful to me even in preparing this. So some of these thoughts even came from my reading of that book, but I want us to focus particularly on just the simplicity and the clarity of God's Ten Commandments as we begin. So let's read Deuteronomy 5, verses 1 through 22. Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God is us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire, while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, and a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. It is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or a sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out there up there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, of the cloud, and of the thick gloom, with a great voice. And he added, No more. The re-giving of the Ten Commandments. And as I approached this, I was just thinking about how it's a reminder that any civilization, any people must have guidelines. There must be some sort of shared vision of what life together looks like. And verses 1 through 5, I think that we read, are a great orientation to all of these things. You know, we need to recognize that this set of Ten Commandments was given at a particular Tied to a particular people, a covenant people, in a place with whom God was dealing specially with. But one of the things you notice here is even though those commandments were given to the generation before, Moses said they weren't given to your fathers, they're actually given to you. So in other words, in each there is that re-giving. There is a decision that we must make about will we follow God's ways. We must understand if we're to live together a way in which people can flourish and society can be civil. You know, Christians over history have argued about how do we approach the Ten Commandments? Are they binding? Is the Old Testament law binding? How do we handle it? We need to recognize again this was for the nation of Israel, but I would argue that these things are timeless. These Ten Commandments are still God's law. Now there are some moral implications here. And we think about being in America where there are many people who don't claim to be God's covenant people. And so we recognize there are some differences in the way that we would handle these things. But listen to this. First century Christians that we have record of here in the New Testament. These people were, many of them, citizens of other countries. Citizens, if you will, of the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome. But they still recognize the validity of the Ten Commandments. In fact, the New Testament, for Christians, it repeats, and if you will, enforces nine of the ten. 
And I'll show you which one in a moment that really uh, the Christians handled a little bit differently. But the New Testament Christians said these are still God's heart and God's ways about how we deal and function in society. You know, American society and our civilization, our country, I think we look and we would say, man, things are really eroding. Many of the institutions and things that have long held sway, they're, they're in trouble. But it's not our institutions that are in trouble. It is our people. We've lost sight of basic right and wrong. I mean, the fact is that many in this postmodern world don't even believe that there is such a thing as truth, as right and wrong. We, we've lost our sensibilities about these things. And we need to come back to them. And I just felt compelled that we should read through these things again and get our attention back on what civilized living looks like. How do we function in this world? There are two tables of the law, if you will. One is how do we orient ourselves to God? And the second table is how do we orient ourselves properly to our neighbor? Two tables of the law. You know, Jesus said that the law is summed up in this. Love God. Love your neighbor. And I think that fits this idea of two tables. So we'll divide out these commandments and thinking about what does it look like to love God and to love our neighbor. We think love is ooby-gooby. So we think love is just an emotion. It's a feeling. And so it's, you know, it can, it can fade away. Love is not some ooey-gooey, mushy feeling. Love is a commitment yielding ourselves to others, if you will. That's not all that love is, but that's a good way to come at love. Say, so, so how do we approach God? How do we yield ourselves before God? How does God say we come rightly before Him? And then what does that yielding and loving others look like? The two tablets or the two tables of the law. So let's think about verses 6 through 11. Rightly approaching God. Rightly approaching this God who redeems. He says, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. I am the God that has redeemed and saved you. So that's what prefaces these commandments. I'm, I'm the God that has saved you. This is a redeemed people. Now how do we approach this loving God. Let's begin. He says, how do you approach me? The God who saves you? How do you love God who is our Redeemer, our Creator? Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. Here is a strict allegiance. You're to focus on me. I am the only true God. So you should bring no other gods. Don't even entertain the thought that there are a pantheon of gods. You shall have no other God but me, the true and living God, the Creator. This is really the basis of our morality. And I think that's why it needs to be given first. You know, think about that. If we have a Creator that has made us, that has designed us, that has with wisdom spoken and brought this world into play, doesn't it do us well to read the owner's manual? To understand how He has created it to function? Is there anything more important than getting that one relationship first and foremost right? Our relationship with our Creator who we will stand before and give an accounting for all of the days that He has given us? Answer, that is the most important thing. And so He says the most important thing then as you tell to life is don't have any 
for me. All right, number two, second command, don't make any idols. Don't worship stuff. And so he says, don't, don't, don't take out of wood and stone. Don't fashion for yourself things that become your allegiance or that you put in the place of a God. You know, idolatry, to study it in the old civilizations is really interesting. And I always thought that people just kind of made little figurines and they bowed down because it was something they could see. There's some indication that idolatry, that, that idolatrous people in societies believed, they didn't believe necessarily that the thing, the little rock or the statue was God, but they did believe that the gods would come and inhabit these things. And, and so anyway, it's an interesting thing. We think that there's no idolaters today, but basically he says, don't, don't take something that you have made or that folks have created and give your allegiance and your heart to those things. I would argue that idolatry is alive and well in 21st century America. But no idol making. Don't try to make something that represents God to you. You know, I think that God is concerned that his, our understanding of Him not be distorted and diminished. Over history, Christians have wondered about having things like a cross. Something that we have fashioned, that we look upon, that kind of represents God to us. And, and so I don't want to get into all of that, but basically God says, you know, anytime you make some little thing and, and you infuse deity into that thing, you are diminishing and distorting who I am. You can't make anything that fully represents God. So don't make idols. Don't worship idols. Then he says, don't take the name of God in vain. There is this covenant name. I am that I am Jehovah or Yahweh. And, and, and the, you know, the Israelites believed that that command was, was serious and they took it seriously and so they didn't even want to say his name. They would have this other name that they would use because they did not, they so revered the very name and they would say that name shouldn't be done trivially. Shouldn't be done associated with banal things or without reverence. Shouldn't be using a scoffing, which, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't use the name of God and invoke the name of God in our joking and all of that. So don't take it in vain, take it seriously. And I, again, I think we could argue that just the idea of God even among many Christians, is not reverence very much. I was watching a, a movie uh, once about, about uh, Christianity and the disciples and all of that, and something struck me. I don't even remember what movie it was, but it was depicting Jewish people who took this seriously, and they would almost whisper the name of Jehovah. And they would say, and bless the name of the Lord our God. After every usage of that, so there was this seriousness and this weight about it. And I think we see that the commandment is clear that we should not even... And for us, I think that means that we don't kick around the name of Jesus. We don't use it as a slang word or a curse word. But also I think it means that we don't associate the name of Jesus and the name of God with wrong theology, like prosperity theology and things like that. So the implications of this one are huge. I think we should be mindful of the fact that when we misuse the name of God and do it flippantly and trivially and banally and jokingly, that those who hear us 
somehow their reverence level for God comes down and down and down. The next one. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. This is the one. The Sabbath command that we don't see repeated for New Testament Christians. Exactly. They were kind of struggling with what to do with the Sabbath day. On the seventh day, are we to do what this says as Christians now? With, with Jesus having come and brought fulfillment to all these things? Are we to take... What would that be for us? It would be Saturday, wouldn't it? Saturday and not do any work and not allow anybody else to do any work. Again, we realize that we're in a, a different place with a different time in a different country. It wasn't that long ago, even when I was a kid, there were still businesses that didn't open on Sunday, which actually, you know, it isn't the Sabbath, it's the first day, right? And so, you know, Christians have struggled with this one, but I think there's some principles there that we should observe, at least. New Testament Christians, their holy day of the week, their day of worship was what? It was the Lord's day. It, it was Sunday, the first day of the week when the Lord Jesus was risen. And so in some ways that becomes the Christian Sabbath. But one of the things that you find here, and you don't actually see the same emphasis in the Exodus 20 giving of the Ten Commandments, is that it's a day, the Sabbath day, is a day of remembrance, of the deliverance from the slavery that once was. It's a celebration, if you will, of the freedom that God had given them in redemption. And I think it's appropriate for us as Christians to think about is Sunday, then, if, if we hold to that, that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, is Sunday a day that we routinely, in the course of our week, set aside to celebrate our salvation? The Lord, first and foremost. We don't fill it with every other thing. I think that's a good principle. And I do think that God wants us to weekly gather together with other Christians and come together and remember our salvation. Remember the deliverance. From our sins that Jesus has brought us. I think we need that. But again, I would say that there are what they call Sabbatarian Christians. Did you know that there are Christians that still hold to worship on the Sabbath? That is on Saturday. We think about Seventh-day Adventists and things like that. Non-Sabbatarians and then those who just say, I don't really care, I don't know, I'm going to do what I want and all of that. But it's a set aside day. So that's thinking about approaching God. That's the first law. Let's move now to the second one. We're going to go through these fairly briefly. How do we love our neighbors according to God? How should society function? How should we think about dealing in a holy way with our neighbors, with those all around us? Because we don't live on this big blue planet all alone. There are other people here. And we have to learn how to live with them well. But I would say all of these things that are to come, they're undergirded with a foundation of a knowledge of God. And when we look at other people and think about other people, we realize these are people created in the very image of God. They bear the image of God. They have a dignity and a value before God. And we should respect that and reverence that and think care about that. So the first commandment, then in the second table of the law, begins right here at home. And he says, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that your days may be long in the land. Honor your father and mother. The health of a nation begins really with understanding the value of a family. The value of parents. Now I know that homes get shattered and death comes and all kinds of things happen to where every uh, family is not filled you know, with the ideal 
situation. There is singleness, which is a gift from the Lord as well. But in general, we have homes with fathers and mothers and children. But really, I thought this was interesting. This commandment is not like throwing a bone to the children. Now I'm going to give nine over here to the adults, but now you kids, make sure you honor your father and mother. This is an adult commandment. This is to say, you know, when you get of age, when you turn 18 or you turn 21 or you get out on your own, you're not supposed to somehow now think that your parents are of no use. They don't know anything. Well, it's about when you turn 14 and you realize your parents are <laughs> But you learn more later, this is a grown-up commandment. Honor. Give respect and reverence to your father and mother. Father and mother. Honor those who God has placed in those positions of authority and respect. Reverence them. Respect and do things for them. Think about your parents. You know, I think about how much a parent gives up, sacrifices to nurture and to love and to care for their children. We owe them respect. We owe them respect just because God says to do it, because of the nature of their position. And again, I would recognize that we don't all grow up in ideal situations. You know, our parents are sinners. They're not perfect. God says, honor them. Honor father and mother as they age. Care for them. One of the things also I think that, you know, every generation wants to quickly cast off their parents' teaching and traditions and things that they value and find their own way. And part of that is it's just natural in the coming of age. You know, we, we the faith, for instance, of our parents. At some point it ceases to be the faith of our parents. And we have to decide, is that going to be what I believe? What I trust in the way I live my life, that's part of it. But we are way too quick to cast off the things that are meant to be handed down generation after generation. So honor your father and mother. Here's the next one. You shall not murder, murder or kill. Thou shalt not kill. The unauthorized taking of a human life. Now, the Bible does show us examples of commandments where God told a nation to go and destroy another nation. So there's the idea of warfare. There are those who are in authority and the Bible says they wield the sword. That is capital punishment that's associated with governments. But that is for the government. But for you and for I as individuals, we are not <coughs> authorized to take a human life. And I suppose if there was a single thing that led me to the Ten Commandments this week. It was what happened right here in our community this week. The heinous taking of a precious human life. We're saddened by what took place. We're, we're shocked a little bit. We grieve with those who grieve. And I think that we need to recognize the truth of the Ten Commandments and the value of it. You shall not murder. You do not have the authority. You are not the creator of life. So you are not to be the destroyer of life. You shall not commit murder. The next one, do not commit adultery. That is, sexual relationship outside of your marital vows. You shall not commit adultery. 
You are to honor your vows, the monogamous commitment of two married people to sexual fidelity. And when that is broken, again, some things have unraveled. Some things have unraveled. How do you know? Society is built on trust. We're supposed to be able to trust our parents, our children. We're supposed to be able to trust our neighbor that they don't want to come and take our very lives. And certainly we are supposed to be able to trust those to whom we have committed the most intimate portions of our life, to whom we have found ourselves with this vow, till death do we part. Do not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Aren't these things pretty terse and plain? Now the one about the Sabbath, we can water that thing around, you know, how we see that. But these are pretty clear. You don't kill. You don't commit adultery. You shall not steal. What we find in the Bible is an affirmation of hard work. We find that the Bible affirms the owning of things, personal property. Not some sort of uh, utopian, socialistic <coughs> idea that everything is community property to be redistributed at whim or at will. No, you shall not steal. No Robin Hood ethics here. Yes, the Bible does promote generosity, sharing with those who have not, but not the forced sharing. You are not, because someone has more than you, you're not authorized to steal. Because you have want or need and someone else has extra, you are not at liberty to take their stuff. You shall not steal. You know what? We need to teach these things. One of the things that's very clear in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is now teach these things to your children. We get all these fights and arguments about whether we should post the Ten Commandments in various places. The importance is not that we're putting them up on a poster. The importance is that we see the value in them, that we affirm them, and that we teach them to the next generation, which is exactly what Moses is doing here. And you know, I remember going to school as a little bitty kid, going to preschool, and, and these are some of the basic things that they taught us. That's not your lunchbox. You can't take his sandwich. Bring your own eraser. Things like that. You shall not steal. Bring your own. Take care of yourself. All right? Don't steal. I need to move on. Do not bear false witness or testimony against your neighbor. Most basically, we could say you're not supposed to lie. Period. You're not supposed to lie about God by taking his name in vain or worshiping idols. You're not supposed to lie to your spouse by committing adultery, but you're not supposed to lie about your neighbor or to your neighbor. Just because it's convenient, you're not supposed to lie. You know, Jesus says this, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And we change that telling little white lies to save feelings or to get a little leg up or an advantage is okay. And this just simply says no. One of the things I thought about as we think about don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And especially with different things going on, different drama, different sad things going on in our community. How quick we are, and I'm guilty too, of spreading a story about someone as gospel. Only to find out in just a few minutes later, it's not truth at all. 
But we can tarnish and tear down people's reputation. We can do grave damage, almost irreversible damage, by quickly flapping our gums when we don't know what we're talking about. So we should not bear false witness or testimony against our neighbor. And then the last one, do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't covet what your neighbor has and then begins to list them. That covet, we need to bring that word back. Don't jealously want. Don't set your heart on getting what your neighbor has. And he gives us a list of what your neighbor might have that you might want. You might be tempted to want. His wife, his house, his farm, his fields, his property, his servants, those who work for him, his business, if you will, his ox, his donkey, his possessions. And you look at that and you go, I don't want anybody's donkey. I don't want anybody's ox. Hey, I was at the state fair yesterday watching livestock show. I wanted a bunch of those people's oxes. And it's really easy to begin to want what everybody else has and be willing to maybe cross lines. But I'll tell you what all of this coveting does. It kills contentment. Kills contentment. And we're prone to kind of think that the Ten Commandments are a bunch of external rules, but really, number 10 right here, God's writing our heart for coveting is something that happens in our head and in our hearts. He's addressing our wants and our desires. And I think this is the commandment that Jesus hits the rich young ruler with. The rich young ruler says, I've kept all those commandments. I didn't lie, I didn't steal, I honor my parents, did all of that stuff. Jesus says, fine, go and sell everything you got and give it to the poor. I think his major sin or idol, if you will, was stuff, and it was in a heart of covetousness. Now, what are we supposed to do with all of this stuff? Number one, just uphold that these are God's laws. This is the way we're to address God in some ways. This is the way we're to approach other people and live together in society. I think it's just good for us to think about these things. But the New Testament teaching about the Law and Ten Commandments, there's some nuance there. Here's what I would say. We're prone, and I do this too sometimes. Oh, that's the law. As if it's a bad thing. The New Testament says that God's law is good. God's law is good. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Not to do away with it. That's what Jesus says. Certainly, Jesus offers forgiveness rather than capital punishment. For those who come to Him. Alright, we, we fail at keeping God's moral law. But Jesus comes and He says, I want to forgive you for your failures. And I want to do something even more. I want to write the law on your heart so that it's not external posters and tablets and teachings that we bump up against. But that it's something that you want to do from your heart. And when Jesus saves us, He gives us a new heart. He gives us a spirit and a desire to want to fulfill the law of God. The Bible says in the New Testament that the law, so we can think about these Ten Commandments, are a schoolmaster or a teacher. And they teach us something very important. So we need to talk about them. And I'm only in uh, about 20 years of teaching and preaching in a local church. I think I've only preached through the Ten Commandments one time. But now I've got two. <laughs> All right. Because sometimes we think, well, the law does not revive. It doesn't save. The gospel saves. But what the law does is it teaches us why we need to be saved. It drives us like a schoolmaster to salvation in Christ. To feel and to see our need 
for Christ. I want to give you a little illustration as I close this thing up. The law of God, think about these ten commandments and the scriptures of the Old Testament and the things that God says to do. They're like the laws of gravity. They're like the hard ground side. They are what is. I mean, I mean that's reality. Transgressing the law or sinning is, I think, like a trampoline. When we get into sin, it's like getting on a trampoline. I always wanted a trampoline as a kid, but my parents would never give me one. They would never give us one. And uh, my kids have a long time, scarcely use it. In fact, if any of y'all want to bargain on a trampoline, I might see me after church. Sin, and being in sin is like getting up on a trampoline. It's a little place where we're kind of free. We're free from the law of God. That old hard ground and the laws of gravity. We can do things that we really thought we could never do. But just because we can transgress the law doesn't mean that the law doesn't exist. And guess what, friends? You can't live up on the trampoline forever. You're going to come down eventually to what really is. I remember being a teenager and, and going to a, a birthday party at some friend's house. There were a bunch of families there at this party, and they had a trampoline. I was so excited. And man, I'll tell you, I was a teenager. I was a super cool dude. <laughs> One of the ways that you could tell I was so cool was I always and only wore white Hanes t-shirts with nothing on them. Plain white t-shirts. You know, I was like the Fonz in the 90s. <laughs> you know, so, so, of course, true to uniform, I had my crisp white t-shirt on, and I pulled up into all these families, and I probably should mention there was a young lady that I had a crush on was at that deal. And so all the teenagers, all the, people, all the kids, you know, were out around the trampoline and I couldn't wait for my turn. I mean, I was like the epitome of the old white men can't jump. My vertical leap was like this big. And uh, I was like, I'm trampoline. I'm going to be able to do superhuman things. It's going to be amazing. And I press this girl and I get up on the trampoline so I kind of get my legs and I'm going. And at some point, you know, you got to do a flip. Right? you got to do a flip. I never could get all the way over and land on my feet. But anyway, this was going on, and I was really sure in my white t-shirt and uh, my cool outfit and my trampoline skills, I was impressing this young lady. And then all of a sudden, I got right towards the edge of the trampoline, and someone else was on it. And they did a little deal right there. And instead of staying on the trampoline, I went airborne, and I came down in the dirt, basically on my face and my shoulder. And I mean, I face-planted, and it hurt. It hurt physically. It hurt my pride. And I'm laying there, I'm like, do I pretend I'm dead? Do I get up? What do I do? Do I run and cry and jump in my car and drive back home? Or do I face the piper or whatever? And uh, I tell you, I wanted to run. I wanted to run. But I decided the man thing to do with the thing that the Fonz would do is face the crowd and be like, School, right? And I couldn't lift my arm. I was hurting. And, and my bright white t-shirt was totally soiled and stained. I mean, it was green and brown. And I don't know if it was red from any blood. I don't think it was that bad. But man, I was hurting. And I went in the house, and then the house was just full of people. You know, if being on the trampoline is like being in sin, eventually you're going to come down. And I came down hard. And I was hurting. And am I going to run? Or am I going to face everybody? And I'll tell you, so I'm going to go in the house and I'm going to face everybody. 
And uh, I was just, I just knew when I went in that house, they were going to laugh at me. This was not the most uh, kind group of people ever, you know. And I thought, what are they going to do? Are they just going to endlessly harangue me or what? And I go in, and the mama of the house, she comes to me, and she looks me over. And she probably did smile a little bit. But I think there was compassion. She's like, oh, my goodness. Are you okay?
because he came to murderers, of which he was one, by the way. And Jesus did this too, and came to adulterers, fornicators, people who, who had lived really debauched, impure lives, openly. Just kind of put it out, out there on Facebook for all to see. And Jesus came and offered forgiveness and a chance for them to repent and turn from that and be made new. Grace of God really is a scandal. Jesus is willing to forgive even murderers Adulterers and thieves and liars and all of those who have transgressed God's laws. Those who have rebelled against their parents. Those who have blasphemed the name of God, taken God's name in vain. Those who have shaken their fist at God. Willing to forgive. The grace of God is crazy good news. If you're here today, Maybe today you've hit the ground. Your sin has been brought to light by these Ten Commandments. You know what you need to do. Don't hop in your car and drive away trying to get away from it. Run into the house of God. Run to the open arms of Jesus and receive His healing and forgiveness and righteousness. That's what you need to do today. You need to believe that Jesus died for you. Take the penalty of your sins and must make you something brand new and change your very heart. That's called salvation. Would you bow with me today? Father, today as we take seriously these very words from the fire that came from your mouth to the people through Moses. And we're aware of your expectation of holiness and purity. The fact is, Lord, that every one of us has the same testimony that we have transgressed your laws in many ways. Even if it has only been in the deep, dark recesses of our hearts, that is still sin to you. And Lord, we're recognizing that we need new hearts, pure hearts. We need a righteousness that doesn't belong to us, but it's the righteousness of Christ. So today, we claim your goodness and grace as the only way that we can be healed. We look to Jesus, our Savior, our Healer, our Perfector. Lord, I pray that we would take seriously these things. I pray for every parent that's here and grandparent that we would be reminded to teach these about the laws of God in our homes to let the law be a schoolmaster that drives us and drives young people and drives sinners who are not yet saved to become sinners saved by grace Lord I pray today for those who have been hurt by our own sins. Or that you would bring reconciliation there. You would do a healing work. Bring your peace into those situations. God, I pray for you. That we would see there is truth. 
There is falsity. There is a moral standard that comes directly from you. Help us to regain our sense of that in this country. Turn, Lord, by a spirit of revival and renewal and repentance. Let it be us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> I would invite you to find me, send me an email, see me after church, and let me know that I want to walk with you in that. And um, if you have need of just someone to visit with about these things, anytime through the week, John and I are both available to you. Thank you for being here today. Here in about five minutes, uh, we're going to begin our business meeting. The packets for our members are in the void. Please grab one of those. You will need a packet. There's a ballot on there for one of the matters that we're going to uh, vote about. And so if you would, uh, let's be dismissed. Grab those packets. If you're a visitor or not a member here today, I apologize for, for rushing around and doing that. But uh, we've got our monthly business meeting. But thank you for being here today. We're glad that you're with us. All right? You are dismissed.